Thank you, Jerry. One more time. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 2 this morning. And I know this is a very familiar passage for many of us. Last week, Pastor Steve titled his sermon, Christmas in May, and we're going to kind of be following it up. For those of you who don't know, over the last few months, we have been talking about when the church was a family. And uh, before that, though, Pastor Zach had started us through the Gospels. And we're not going through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in that order. But what we are doing is we're going chronologically through the life of Christ. So we may pick up, there may be a passage uh, from Matthew, and then next week a, a passage from from Luke, and then maybe John, depending on the order of Christ's life. And so today we're looking at Matthew chapter 2 again, verses 1 through 18. So why don't we go ahead and, and read this together. Verse 1 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen went when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son." Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. As I said, I know this is a, a familiar passage, and we've heard this many times on Christmas, but a lot of times when we, 
when we talk about something like this on Christmas, where there's so many distractions. You know, we have Christmas Day ahead of us. We, we, we've just been shopping for the last few days. It's busy. And we really don't get to the meat of what Matthew is trying to tell us here. And often we get sidetracked by all the, the different tra- traditions that we have. One of the great reformers, Martin Luther, said this, speaking of Christmas, he said, this is the season of the year, whether we wish to or not, we are compelled to think of the birth of Christ. See, Martin Luther didn't really like Christmas as it was celebrated. He thought it was just a a holiday that was created, uh, and it really did not focus on what Christmas or, or the birth of Christ was really all about. But Martin Luther did say this, he says, I wish that there were 10 or a dozen Christmas days in the year. See, he didn't believe it should be just be one day that we thought about the birth of Christ. He thought it, was, it should be more often. He then said this, he said, The mystery of the humanity of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh, is beyond human understanding. It's beyond all comprehension that he sunk himself into human flesh. What he, what he meant by that is that he became one of us that he actually took on flesh. And I read a story about a Chinese man who had converted to Christianity, and he told the story to illustrate the difference between what he had found in the the supernatural life of Christ, becoming a man and, and doing supernatural works, and his previous life of Confucianism. And he told this story, he says, A man fell into a dark pit, and he tried to climb out, but he couldn't. Confucius came along, He saw the man in the pit and said, Poor fellow, if he had listened to me, he never would have fallen into the pit. And Confucius went on his way. Buddha came along and saw the man in the pit and said, Poor fellow, if he can climb up here, I'll help him. And he too left. Then Christ came and said, Poor fellow. And he jumped into the pit with the man and raised him out of the pit and carried him along with him. That's uh, quite a, a... A difference, isn't it? And the Chinese scholar said this, that is the difference between Christianity and every other religion of the world. They simply give instructions, a code of conduct, but Christianity alone has the supernatural power, the resurrection of the life of Christ to raise us up, to do what we could not do ourselves. In 1987, I went to a concert. I was not a Christian at the time. I went to a concert in Tempe, Arizona, it was a U2 concert. Anybody else go to the U2 concert in Tempe, Arizona? A couple, maybe? Friday night, there was a bunch of us. I had no idea that they were there, but I was there. And at that concert, there was a song that U2 sang, and I'm not encouraging anybody to go to U2 concerts. Remember, I wasn't a Christian. But there was a, 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 a song that they would sing, and it, it, it was titled 40, and I didn't really know what it was, but it, I, it laughed it left a lasting impression on me. And that, that song went something like this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit, out of the merry clay. I will sing a new song. And it was interesting because as we left the concert, you two had long gone and everybody was walking out of the concert through, you know, through, through uh, Sun Devil Stadium. And, and we were all singing that song together on an ongoing basis. And, you know, I became a Christian the very next year, and I remember reading, and I came across this psalm, Psalm 40. And it says this, 
I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the merry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And that is the story of the incarnation. He, God, jumped into the pit with us. The pit is this world, this world of humanity, and that is what the Bible is all about. And last week, Steve showed how all the Old Testament prophecies point to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ. But the prophets didn't necessarily really get this, yet they gave their prophecies, but they were unclear, and they had to search things out. And Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You know, they, they couldn't know. The, the, the pastors couldn't really, I mean, the, the prophets couldn't really know. They pointed to his birth. They pointed to his life. They pointed to his death. They pointed to his resurrection. But the full identity of Christ really wasn't displayed until we come to the life of Christ and, and we see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you look at these four Gospels, the four Gospels are looking at Christ from four different perspectives. For instance, Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as the sovereign king. You know, when you look at Matthew, his life is really displayed as the sovereign king. And you see this in, beginning in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, where it talks about that he came from Abraham and through the, the lineage of David. And he was a son of David, the, Israel's model king. And then we see Mark presents Jesus as really the exact opposite, the suffering servant. Mark doesn't give any genealogy because the genealogy of a servant isn't really important to us. And then you have Luke, who presents Jesus as the Son of Man, and so he traces Jesus' genealogy back to the first man, Adam. And then you have John, and John presents Jesus as the Son of God and gives no human genealogy, but simply shows that he was God from all eternity. And we see this in, in the beginning of John in, in verse 1, verse... John 1.1, 1, 1, that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we are looking in the book of Matthew today, and the book of Matthew really centers on the kingship of Christ. You know, the kingship of Christ is on display from the very beginning. But Matthew doesn't just simply focus on the kingship. He focuses on the fact that Christ was rejected as king. And what you see is a picture of the, the Gospel of Matthew is the cross is a shadow of everything across this whole Gospel. And if I had this picture that if you were to look at the life of Christ through the book of Matthew, you would see this, the birth of Christ here and you'd see this cross at the very end. But I had this picture of the sun shining at the cross and the shadow of the cross is over the whole book. And it really focuses on the rejection of Christ as the king. And how we view Christ as the king is important. It shows whether we are devoted to him. And so that's what we have to do is we have to look at him. We see that he is rejected over and over again. And there are attacks against Jesus and his character. There are attacks against his claims. And there are bitter attacks. And when you come to the cross, there are no friends in Matthew's gospel, no loved ones at the foot of the cross. 
Yes, the women are standing off at a distance looking, but nobody's there except this one person and not a friend, simply a, a Gentile centurion who says in Matthew 27, verse 54, truly this was the Son of God. See, it didn't come from his people, it didn't come from his family, it didn't come from the, re the religious leaders. And so what we see in Matthew's gospel is really the Great Commission. We, we hear the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's not the beginning of the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 2, you see these wise men coming from a distance, Gentiles coming, because we see that it wasn't just about the Jews. It was about the Gentiles coming to worship him as well. And we can praise God for that because many of us, most of us are Gentiles, who God has called from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that's the amazing thing about the gospel. It's not just for one people. It's for all of us. It's for all nations. John says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, meaning the Jewish sins, the sins of his people, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is for the whole world. And this wasn't something new. You know, we often look at the new covenant as being something that was instituted that, that changed the way that God looked at the world. But God meant the gospel to be for all nations from the very beginning. And Israel often missed it. Isaiah chapter 60 actually speaks, I, I think alludes to this passage that we're reading in Matthew 2. Isaiah 60 verse 3 through 6 says, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those of Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So you see, it wasn't just for Israel. It was for all the people. And instead of Israel being a light to the nations, they were blind to what God was doing, to what God's plan was for them. And we are in, in many ways blind to what God's plan is for us as a, as a church. That we don't see, we think, okay, we're saved and the gospel is about us. But the gospel is also about us reaching out to the nations, to people in our own communities, to our own families, reaching out because God cares for them and wants them and wishes them to be saved. And we see in many ways, as I said, that the the, the world that we live in is, is much like the world that Jesus came to, and the world is in disarray. Our nation is in disarray, and the church is in disarray. And we are, we are truly living in an age that, that truth is under attack. And it's clear that the, that the church does not stand for it. You know, there's many ways no right and wrong, and because of this, there's a, an accommodation for sin. You know, there's no longer really any black or white, and but we need to fight as a church. We need to fight for truth. We need to fight against the allurement of the world. We need to fight off the, the temptation to compromise. We need to fight off the temptation to compromise and stop being entertained by things that we should weep over. We're the church. We're called to be different. 
And sadly, we are entertained by things that we should weep over. Francis Schaeffer said this, this is a great evangelical disaster. The failure of the evangelical world to stand for truth as truth. You know, I read this, this story, a school teacher when applying for a job was asked, do you teach creation or do you teach evolution? And the teacher responded, which way do you want it taught? I can teach it both ways. And sadly, that's what we do as Christians. We compromise. We, we want people to like us and we want, we want our jobs to be fruitful. And so we're willing to compromise in, in different ways. You know, what used to be thought of, of as unacceptable is now esteemed in many churches. And as seen in the preaching of many churches today, those who stand in the, the pulpit of many evangelical churches are not anxious to tell people what the gospel says, what God wants them to hear, but they're ready to teach the people what they want to hear. And so they, they fill their churches and don't teach the truth of the gospel, but they teach them what they want to hear. And the world is, as we see it, is out of control. But the world that Jesus came to is also out of control. And Jesus knows that it needs to be corrected. And that's one of the elements of what Matthew is teaching. When Jesus is born, instead of Jerusalem being overjoyed, it is troubled at the news that Christ has been born. On the throne of Israel, we see this wicked, illegitimate king by the name of Herod. You know, he's a man who is an Edomite, was half Jewish and half Edomite, who were the enemies of the Israelites. And he's a puppet king that Rome has put on the throne and He's antagonistic against the people. We see that in this passage, he, he sheds innocent blood, and the world is sick. And it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, when he first begins his public ministry, says this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It shouldn't surprise us, because the world is out of control. And our passage, to, our passage today tells us that these wise men, they came to Bethlehem, and we all know that the story is filled with tradition, and we love tradition. But the problem is with tradition that it really can obscure the message of what God is trying to say. And we need to get rid of the tradition to find out what Matthew is trying to tell us. And so they come to, to Bethlehem, and literally, Bethlehem means house of bread. And it's interesting that Jesus says of himself, what? That he is the bread of life. And here he is born in the house of bread. And here in Bethlehem, we see the first announcement of the, the temple was made there. And here in Bethlehem is where Jesus Christ was born, the, the true temple. We know Bethlehem is the place where Jacob buried Rachel. And you can still go to Rachel's tomb to this very day. And we know that here in Bethlehem is where Ruth married Boaz. And where their great-grandson was born by the name of David. David became really the greatest king to, to sit on Israel's throne until the coming of Christ. And it's interesting when you think about the birth of Christ. You know, when the birth of Christ, when we, we read last week in, in Luke's gospel, the birth of Christ, there's this great commotion in heaven. Angels are singing and it's, it's an amazing scene. But what are they singing about? What are they singing about? This baby being born in this little corner of the world, this cave, dark, dingy, a place of humility, and the angels are rejoicing. 
You know, this picture of Christ when he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John, this glorious Christ, that is who Christ was, this glorious Christ clothed in majesty. And yet, he steps off of his throne, humbles himself, puts on peasant's clothes, and steps into our world, and the angels rejoice over it. That's the picture. He's the king who has come, but he's not come to his glorious throne. He has actually left his glorious throne and come to to lift us up out of the pit. And then we see in Micah 5.2 that this promised Messiah comes to this little tiny village in Bethlehem. And it's interesting that this commotion comes in Christ's humiliation. And we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Luke tells us that these angels are proclaiming the newborn king and there's a heavenly host. You see these angels and now there's stars and there's shepherds and there's wise men. And we come to the wise men and we think, we want to know all about them. But you know what? The, the traditions of the wise men only obscure Jesus. You know, who were they? Where were they from? You know, we don't really know for sure who, for sure who they were. And, you know, I, I read a lot of commentaries and they say that he was, they were probably from Persia or, or Babylon because we know in the exile, you know, they were there and they took the word of God to, to Babylon in the exile and they had probably read about Christ and that he was coming and they see this star and, and they set out and they're going to go. But you know what? Those things, the, those traditions about the wise men don't really matter. Rejoice, rejoice that God drew the wise men. Rejoice that he drew the wise men, but don't get distracted by them because they were looking for Jesus, the king. And what they saw, what they saw, they saw a star and it grabbed their attention. That light they saw captivated them and would not let them go. They saw something that was supernatural and they responded. And we can say that their response is a real tribute to them being wise. Why were they wise men? Because they followed God's calling. They weren't wise because of their own human wisdom. They were wise because of what God had called them to. And in our passage in verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read those again. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. But again, you know, obscuring Jesus often is the, the traditions of the star. You know, some say it was astronomical phenomenon and you know, it eventually stood over where the child was. You know, some people thought it was maybe a comet. Some people thought that it was uh, maybe stars that had lined up and had a, made a brighter star. I actually read one commentary that thought maybe it was an angel because in Revelation chapter 1 it says the seven angels are the, or the seven stars are the seven, seven angels of the churches. But you know what? It doesn't really matter what the star was. It doesn't matter because when we, we see the star, it's not there for us to look at the stars. It's there for us to find Christ. John, and we know that we don't have a 
stars today to show us the way, but we, we can say that Jesus is the light of the world, that his word is a light to our path, a light to our feet. We see in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, it says this, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice that God used the star, but don't get distracted by the star, because it was, it was leading to Jesus the King. We see again in verse 2, it says, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Notice this. Jesus Christ is born king. Every other king is made. Now you can say, well, oh no, Prince Charles was born king. No, Prince Charles was not born king. In fact, we don't know that he'll ever be king. His mom may outlive him and he may never ascend to the throne. John Piper said this, he said, Somewhere alive in America today, there are probably three or four children or young people under the age of 18 who are going to be president of the United States someday. But nobody really cares about this or sets out to find them or honor them. That's true. There's probably several presidents of the United States that have yet to come to, you know, the presidency. But we're not really excited about them, are we? We don't care. But Jesus Christ was born king. He didn't have to become king. He was born king. And then we see in verses 1 and 2, the wise men coming to Jerusalem, and we get the first response to Jesus being king. And the first response to Jesus being king is this, anxiety. Anxiety. We see this in verse 3. It says, when Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. No, they were troubled. They were anxious. What does this mean? They were worried. Many people were probably worried because Herod, being a wicked man, could probably start killing everybody. You know, he was known for his ruthlessness. Herod was probably worried because he was on his throne and didn't want somebody to take his throne. You know, the religious leaders were probably worried because they had their political power and they didn't want anybody to come and take their power away. Have you ever noticed this? That when you share the gospel with somebody, when you talk about Jesus, you know, they get anxious. They start to get like, you know, I, I think I'm going to leave the room and go somewhere else now that you're talking about Jesus. You know, if you, tell them, if you tell them, oh, you know, Jesus is a good man, they're okay with that. You tell them Jesus is a prophet, maybe they're okay with that. You tell them that Jesus is king, though, that's when they get really nervous. You know, I get nervous. I get nervous when I go out with Pastor Steve just to lunch. <laughs> you know, I, have to, I have to get prayed up because I know Jesus is going to be sharing the gospel. I mean, Steve is going to be sharing the gospel with everybody there. So I get nervous and I know it's the right thing to be sharing the gospel, but that's a response that we have sometimes, isn't it? You know, people get anxious. Why? Because... They know that if Jesus is king, he's going to encroach on their reign as being king of their own lives. They don't like 
Jesus is king, because if he's king, they're not. But we have that, that same trouble, don't we? We like to be king. We like to be king of our own destinies. Sometimes we don't like Jesus to call us to do something. We would rather do what we want to do. The second response that we see to Jesus as king is, is this. It's apathy. Apathy. We see this in verses 4 through 6. It says this. It says, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. But what was their response to this? You know, Bethlehem is five or six miles away. Do you see Jerusalem? Do you see the Israelites or the Jewish people going out? We, we're going to go right to Bethlehem. We're going to find this out. No, they don't even do anything. No, the wise men do. The wise men go, but everybody else just stays there. They're just apathetic. They know the history. Micah, Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origins is from old, from ancient days. They knew this prophecy. These wise men come. They say that they've seen the star. Where is he going to be born? They tell him, but they don't do anything. They know it's true. They know that God is, is going to be coming. They know the Messiah is going to be coming, but they don't do anything. And they couldn't be bothered. And when you look at this passage in Micah, see, you see the ruler is going to be coming from Bethlehem. So what that tells us is that he's going to be a man. But it also says, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. He's not only man, but he's God. He's 100% man and he's 100% God. And yet, they could not even go out to see him. You know, I had a friend when I became a Christian and I was sharing the gospel with him. And, you know, he, I, I explained the gospel. He actually told me, yeah, I understand, I believe. Not with a belief that saves, but he believed and he understood. He wasn't anxious about me talking to him about it. But when I said, well, then come, he said, no, I'm not going to come. I've got my own agenda. You know, I've got my life I want to live. He was just apathetic to the call. And like I said about us being anxious, sometimes we're apathetic to what Christ calls us to. We don't really care the way Christ wants us to care. We don't really live the way that Christ wants us to live. He is king. And we're just apathetic to what he calls us to. And we have to, we have to check ourselves. Jesus, let me to love you like a king. Let me to serve you like a king. Let me not be apathetic. And then we see the third response to Jesus as king. And it's this. It's aggression. Aggression. We have this man, his name is Herod. Herod was a, a ruthless man. You know, as I was reading, it says that there's no really extra-biblical literature that talks about kill, Herod killing the children of Bethlehem. It's only found in the Bible. 
And some will say, well, that shows that it's maybe not even true. And, but the truth about Herod is he killed hundreds of people. This was probably not even a, a blip on the map when it comes to the big things that he did. Herod was so ruthless and so paranoid that he was going to be taken off his throne. He, he killed his own wife because he thought that she might come and try to take his throne away from him. He killed his own mother-in-law because he thought she might take the throne away from him. Then he killed his own sons because he thought they might take the throne away from him. Anybody that was going to try to take his throne, he was going to try to kill. He was a wicked man. And there was a saying, better to be Herod's pig than his son. And that was, that was a well-known, a, a wicked man. And you see Herod calling this meeting. He wants to call this meeting because he wants to rid the world of anyone that would call him to be accountable. I was talking to Pastor Steve and he says, you know, the atheists, those who want to kill God are the, the most wicked and vile people that come against him as an you know, evangelist. He has to ban them from his blog because some of the things they say are so vile. You know, Psalm 14.1 says this, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is, no, there is none who does good. And every human being that, that hears the message of Jesus Christ and responds with anger operates on the same policy of Herod. It's irrational and it's absurd and it's an unwillingness to deal with the truth. And it's a de desire to kill God and to make him unexistent. Why? Because they want their own throne. See, if anybody says that Jesus is, is God or there is a God, then they must bow to him. But people don't want to. It's irrational, but they don't want to because they want to be on the throne. And Herod makes a request. He calls a secret meeting with the wise men and he wants them to be his spies. We see this in verse 7. He says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. You know, they ask him this question. You know, it, they must have told him that it was probably 18 to, to 20 months or something like that because if he's going to get rid of him, he decides to kill everybody two years old and under. You know, he will kill them in order to secure his throne. And you know, anybody that wants to take the attention off Herod, he wants to stop them. And we see in verse 8, it says, He sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Do you think that he really wanted to go and worship him? Absolutely not. A wicked, deceitful man who wants to, goes out and kills little children to save his, his self. But in the tragedy of him killing these young children, God overrules the aggression of Herod. This small-minded, irrational, paranoid man. He thinks he has all the power. He sits, he sits on the throne of Judea. He thinks he has all the power, but he doesn't have any. You know, many rulers today think that they have all the power. You know, often we think that we have all the power, that we are the, the masters of our own destiny and the things that we do, and we simply don't want to bow down to God as well. But these people, they have... We, we have no power and these kings have no power. In fact, another man 
told Jesus that he had the power to take his life. This man was named Pilate, and in John 19, verses 10 and 11, Pilate said to him this, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? But Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. See, Pilate didn't have any authority. Whatever authority these men had, it's been given by God. Whatever authority we have, it's been given by God. And then we see the wise men leave in in verse 9. It says this, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place that the child was. This is a miracle. You know, the star that they had seen in the sky now appears again over, over Bethlehem, this five to six miles to the south of, of Jerusalem. And the, the guidance of the star brings the wise men to a place where the child is, and you know, the star leads them to Jesus Christ. And when we understand this, everything in heaven, everything that this Bible, this word is all about, is leading us to Jesus Christ. And the star, it reached Christ. It reached Christ in spite of the anxiety of the religious leaders, in spite of the apathy of the people of Jerusalem, in spite of the aggression of Herod, it reached Christ. And that should be our goal. That we would point people to Jesus Christ. That he is the most important thing. There's many people teaching today that we have to find something more. And that was true even at the time of Christ. And we have people teaching that You know, there's things that lead beyond the simple teachings of Christ. There's this mystical teachings that we should follow after, and they are the ones that are truly experiencing God. We need to find Christ, and where do we find Christ? In his word. We need to stand on his word. We need to stand on the the doctrinal truth of the word of God, what what it teaches about Christ. Many people want to go beyond, and John says in 2 John verse 9, he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. We abide in the teaching of who Christ is by staying in his word, by learning his word, by growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We we don't need to go out and seek out the newest fad, the newest thing that's going on, because we have the truth of the word of God, and we we have the truth of Christ. And then we see in verse 10 that, it gives us the response of the wise men, and it's the fourth response to Jesus as king, and it's adoration. Adoration. Matthew 2.10 says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You know, they can't say it any greater than that. They rejoiced exceedingly. It was joy exceedingly with great joy. I mean, you can't talk about their excitement more than that. When we look at this, the, the success of the wise men was not that they sought Christ. It was that they had found him. That's their success. If you think about this, they, they could have traveled thousands of miles to come to Christ. But if they had not found him, it was worthless. Have you ever heard people, they say this, Oh, I'm seeking. I'm seeking. As if that means something. No, that doesn't mean anything. Because if you seek never to find, you've missed the whole point. 
I'm seeking God. I want to seek. No. No. Find Christ. Bow to him as king. That's what's important. Matthew 2.11 goes on. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now they worshipped him. and They didn't worship his mother. They didn't worship themselves. They didn't worship the star. They didn't worship Joseph. They worshipped the child. That's what it says in verse 11. It's all about the child. And we see that in verses 13 through 15. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Now, it wasn't just any old child. It was the child, the only child that could be born king of the Jews. And who is the most important person in this passage? The child is. You know, it's not Herod. It's not, today, it's not Barack Obama. You know, it's not the religious leaders. It's not about me. It's not about Zach. It's not about Kevin or Steve. It's about the child. It's not about the wise men, all of us here. It's not about you. It's about him. We need to seek him out. There are a lot of sermons out there, and I read a lot of them that say we need to be like the wise men. But realize this. If God had not been the one to lead the wise men to the child, they would have never left their home. It was God drawing them to him. They would have never found Jesus. In Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 says this, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And people say they're seeking. No, they're not seeking. God may be drawing them, but they're not seeking. When we look at this, when we look at the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, God becoming a human being, It is amazing because it shows that a loving God cares for us. He cares for us. And without him seeking us, we would be lost. Without him reviving us, we would be dead. And he seeks after us. God cares about us. And that's the purpose of him coming to earth, to bring redemption to mankind and He's not just a good man. He's not just somebody who helps us think better about ourselves. He's not just the one who blesses us with good jobs and good family and those things. No, he's so much more than that. Ephesians 2, let me finish with this. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we were. 
We were children of wrath. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But verse 4 says this, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is he your Savior? Let me ask you another question. Is he your King? There is a difference, isn't there, though? Do we bow our knees to him? How have you responded to Jesus as king? Are you anxious about it? Are you apathetic about it? Are you angry about it? My prayer is that you would respond like the wise men responded, in adoration and worship. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the incarnation of Christ, that he, being the King of kings and Lord of lords, took on the very nature of a servant and became a man and was willing to pour out it all on a cross. What a servant we have. But Lord, we know it also says that because who was willing to give it all. You gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I pray that we would bow our knees before him and worship him. Father, as we come right now to sing to you and to sing to our Lord Jesus Christ, would I pray that our worship would be pleasing to your ears. But not just our worship, not just our singing, our very lives would be poured out as an offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, shall we stand up and, and worship him? He's worthy to be worshiped, isn't he?